0: Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much and let's get into the episode. Today we have a great guest. Jawad Ali is the founding partner of Vality Partners and founder of Austin MedTech Connect. In this episode, we talk about connecting the MedTech community in Austin, what brought him into consulting and what he's learned, what he's excited about in the future of MedTech And the use of AI in healthcare. This is a great episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did.
1: Hey, Javad, how are you doing? I'm great, Zane. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, Thanks for joining me on uh, this episode. I really appreciate it a lot.
1: Appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Excited to be on here.
0: Yeah, man. Um, So for those who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself?
1: Sure. So I am a surgeon here in Austin, Texas. I did my residency here, and then my fellowship was in minimally invasive surgery, bariatrics, and advanced endoscopy at UC Davis. I practiced in Kaiser for a little bit before coming back to Austin. And now uh, my clinical practice consists of trauma acute care surgery, as well as elective general surgery, in which I do kind of bread and butter surgery, robotics, endoscopy, and foregut surgery. And then uh, alongside that, uh, I founded a consulting firm, Vality Partners. And then we recently started an organization called Austin MedTech Connect to break down the silos in the kind of exploding MedTech ecosystem here in Austin, as well as, I think, in Texas as a whole.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, do you have time to sleep ever Like with all the stuff you're
1: doing? (laughs) You know, there is a lot of Red Bull going on, but yeah, I definitely sleep is actually one of my goals is to kind of get better sleep. Uh, So definitely working on it.
0: Yeah, one thing that I think is a common theme with all uh, healthcare providers is we are very bad at taking care of ourselves.
1: I totally agree, and I think it's one of those things that's easy to push down the road. I and mean, We prioritized a lot of other things. And, you know, recently I joined um, Olivia and the Making Medicine Better podcast, and that's kind of the goal is, you know, helping physicians just create a better environment for themselves. So I agree. I think I think that's something that we don't do a good job of, and I definitely don't do a good job of either.
0: Yeah, no. I actually, I'd love to kind of learn a little bit more about that podcast endeavor. You just recently were announced as being part of the panelist What is the goal, like you kind of mentioned a little bit of the goal of the podcast, but are are you going to be a recurring guest or how does that work?
1: Yeah, so um, Olivia founded a group called Doctors Living and the focus of that was to help physicians kind of, you know, take ownership of their lives and, um, you know, help them in in, in their working environment because, you know, Olivia and David Morris are in the UK and, you know, as much as we're struggling with it here in the US and Canada, they also have a lot of struggles in the UK. And so um, it was kind of came as a result of um, her husband, David, is is a physician and the struggles that he went through during his practice. I think she saw that and realized, you know, there was a need for this kind of organization. And so as a result of that work, they also wanted to start a podcast called Making Medicine Better to kind of help publicize um, this problem and bring on guests talking about different not necessarily solutions, but different aspects of it, different things that are happening, open open up the discussion. Um, and it's been awesome. Yeah, so I am uh like one of the um guest hosts. So it's basically Olivia and David, and then basically three or four people who are kind of rotating uh hosts on each show. And it's it's gonna be a weekly podcast.
0: That's awesome. I, I, this wasn't I was not wanting I didn't know we were gonna talk about this, but I think this is really interesting to bring up that I think that one thing that also we don't do a good job of, is showing people all the things that we're dealing with. And I think that's one of the reasons why medicine has gotten... That's why I think a lot of people have burned out because of that reason, because people don't realize all of the issues that we're dealing on the back end and all the things that we're dealing with personally and emotionally and physically or whatever you want to call it. And I think that's great that you guys are doing that because there definitely needs to be a put a light to it because burnout isn't as simple as we're overworked. There's more to it than that.
1: Yeah, I personally don't even like the word burnout. It sounds like... You know, you're just not relaxing enough, you know, it makes it sound so lame, (laughs) you know. And I think the problem is obviously it's a huge problem and we're seeing it in multiple ways. The first episode we did um, last week was on physician suicide, you know, and like, you know, people were killing themselves, right? It's not like something like, you know, they need to journal or yoga, like they're killing themselves. And if you can imagine what it takes for someone who is otherwise a high functioning individual in society to take their own life. I mean, that tells you a little bit about how serious the problem is. Um, and so that was our first uh, episode, you know, pretty heavy topic. We had Dr. Uh, Dyke Drummond on there who, um, you know, has been in this space for, I think like 15 years now, um, the, the physician, you know, wellness kind of space. And he, he does, uh, advise your work for companies too. So it was interesting to kind of hear his take. And one of the biggest takeaways that I got from that, which, you know, I'll share with you and, and your audience is that if we see colleagues in our environment who we think are struggling, you know, that's what, one of the things that we can all do like starting today is to just say like, how's it going? You know, like how are things kind of that, you know, you just don't know like who, who, the depth of someone's struggles sometimes.
0: Yeah, no, hundred percent. I don't like the word burnout either because it really, I think trivialize, trivializes so it tries to distill something that's so complex into one one word and i don't like that i mean even my one of my recent articles why i left clinical medicine it wasn't because i was burnt out it was because i wasn't able to solve the problems the way i wanted to solve them yeah. and i wanted to go outside of the system that i'm part of and try to fix the system yeah. from the outside and for me that was burning me out it wasn't the amount of work i'm doing or this and right. that it was just being just wanting to change something that i couldn't change so yeah Correct. like you said it's just so but yeah, no, that's amazing. I think that's, uh, you know, whoever's listening to it, definitely listen to that podcast. I'll be also, I'll also be listening as well. So, um, but yeah, no, I'd love to touch, uh, not to like bring light to that situation, but I just wanted to kind of pivot into some of the other things that you're doing. So um, in Austin, Texas, you're making me really jealous with all the things you guys are doing down there. Uh, you guys are doing some awesome things down there in the tech community. Could you want to talk a little bit about that, how that came about?
1: Sure. So, you know, I had my residence here in Austin. Uh, my wife and I really both love this city for a lot of reasons. Um, but one of the reasons that we came back was because there was a lot of activity and growth. And I felt like the city was at an inflection point in particular for med tech and life science. As you kind of have this convergence of clinical innovation and advanced technology Cause I think this city has a lot of, you know, advanced tech with, you know, obviously the Silicon um, chip infrastructure, as well as a lot of the software talent. Um, and then it has a ton of entrepreneurial spirit and venture capital. And then when you combine that with a lot of the clinical resources in the region, you know, in Austin also, but specifically in like San Antonio and Houston, then you kind of really see the makings of, um, of like, you know, a top three medical technology, you know, uh, region. And so um, as I was growing our advisory firm, I during COVID, I was networking with a bunch of people, mostly on Zoom, and I realized how many people that actually were in Austin, and I realized how disconnected the community was. you know. And so I basically joined every organization in town, and they were all doing an awesome job, but no one was solving the specific problem of addressing the lack of connectivity and the siloing of the different stakeholders. Because, and I often talk about this, like, medical innovation isn't like other sectors where there's like a maker and a buyer, you know, you have several stakeholders, right. You have, you know, obviously the med tech company or startup or strategic, you have the clinicians, you have the hospital systems, you have the payers, you have the investors, you know um, you have the large tech companies now, you know, Google meta are all getting into the space. Apple. I mean, we had a lot of those things present here, but they weren't connected and so uh, we formed Austin Met Tech Connect um, as an organization to break the silos, bring people together. Uh, and it's been awesome. We actually just had our board, one of our board meetings today. And we're just talking about, you know, we just really had our first major event in December of, of last year, you know. So that's just like three months ago. And it's, it's pretty cool just to see the momentum and the reception from the community.
0: Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I think that a key word there is silos. And I, that's one thing that I'm trying to do with this podcast as well is just bring people from all sides of the, The conversation and bringing together and and finding out that you know we are all trying to solve the same problem and we can solve that problem much faster and much better if we just kind of work together so that's amazing you guys are doing there uh and what's well
1: i'll say i'll say one thing you know like you as a clinician and it's something that i found are kind of uniquely situated because you not only interface with all the different sectors like you interface with you know obviously the hospital system Um, the payers, other clinicians, so that's already half the ecosystem. But then now with your tech work, you're interfacing with, you know, um, entrepreneurs, med tech executives, investors. And so, like, we're, the clinician who's involved in medical innovation is one of the few people who actually interfaces with pretty much the breadth of the stakeholder spectrum, in a way. So I feel like the clinician is, in a way, uniquely positioned to kind of, you know, either lead or at least be a part of these ecosystem-building efforts.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think that it's really important for us clinicians to get out there and be part of the conversation. Because, like you said, we are we are so well connected. We don't realize it. We don't. I don't think we A lot of us realize it until we actually go out and talk to people. And there's so many startups that I talk to that all they're looking for is to reach out to a clinician and they're trying right. to get a hold of somebody in the medical right. world. Right. And they just don't know how to do it. And the funny thing is, we don't also know how to do it. It's just like this right. weird thing. Like they're scared to reach out to us. We. Don't even right. know they exist. It's just, it's so weird. And that's why I think like groups like yours are amazing.
1: No, thank you for saying that. I mean, I think as you know, like clinicians often have a, a, a circle that is full of clinicians. And so we think like everyone's a clinician out there because like we know so many clinicians, you know? And so um, that's so true. I mean, the premise of all our Validity Partners was um, reliable and affordable clinical advice shouldn't be hard to get because when these companies form without solid clinical footing, then they are not set up for success. Right. And, and, you know, I, I appreciate what these founders are trying to do. They put their blood, sweat and tears into it. Um, Same thing with investors, they put, you know, they're literally their dollars into it. And um, it's not as simple as you would think to have an idea that is successful in the clinical environment, even if it makes sense superficially that there's so many nuances to it, both on, you know, like not necessarily on, you know, both on the like, clinical evidence and workflow side but also in the healthcare marketplace side that you really have to have someone who has insight on both of those areas to tell you like you know is this a great idea is this a good idea or is this a bad idea
0: yeah no for sure i mean like you said i think everyone that's trying to solve these issues is coming from extremely good place you know they're coming from some sort of passion either something happened in their life or somebody in their family or somebody that they know and they're trying to solve that problem But I think the thing that uh, when I talk to startups, or I'm sure that you, when you talk to startups, they get, when you tell them why that problem is happening, you kind of get this, like, they're kind of looking at you like, whoa, like, you know, like they haven't, they didn't realize, they were just like literally looking at the tree and then we present them with the forest and they're like, whoa.
1: Oh, right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's also not easy for them to um, overestimate the significance of their particular, like solution. Right. They might might see a problem and they might have a solution and they think this solution is like the best thing ever. Then as the founder or the founding team, it's their it's their duty almost to be like that. Um, but sometimes they need um a little, I don't want to say reality check, but like a little bit of um context, you know, of like here's how it actually fits in into the whole complex environment of not just the way the patient comes to the clinician, the patient, the clinical workflow, you know, all of those things um it really helps to be put into like the entire context and yeah. I, I think you know um like clinician advisors uh are in a good position to do that especially especially when you work with like a multidisciplinary disciplinary team you know which is kind of what we've built out at validity
0: yeah no for sure and i think that no i 100 percent agree with you so what what kind of advice do you give to um startups if they want to reach out to clinicians um like you know because i think a lot of them don't know how or what's the best way of reaching out to like people like yourself
1: yeah. So, I mean, I I, I break it into two categories. One is, you know, any clinician in that space is going to be helpful. And then two is the clinician who actually has experience working with industry because the frontline clinician can tell you, I would use that. I would not use that. Here's what I see every day. But then the clinician who has experience working with the med tech industry can go beyond that and tell you, you know, here's how, the value analysis committee is going to react to this. Here's why this might be a better fit for the ASC. You know, here's how you can position yourself as far as pricing or as far as marketing to be successful. Um, And then, you know, down the road, set yourself up for acquisition, you know? So I think those two things almost are two separate types of clinicians. One is kind of, let's say you have, you know, um, like a remote patient monitoring cardiac device. You could speak to a cardiologist and they could tell you, here's the things we look for in our patients. But then, you know, you could speak to a, another cardiologist who has a, a, a med tech background or has a company in this space. And they could tell you a lot more about, you know, here's how the reimbursement models work. Here's how you're going to set the clinical workflow around this. You know, here's who's going to pay for this. Here's what they're going to pay. Here's what your pricing has to be in order for you to be successful kind of thing.
0: Yeah, no, you know? yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, and i think that's a good segue into kind of what you're you're consulting right um you want to kind of go into that like kind of why you built it and you know what what you guys are trying to do with it
1: sure you know thank you um i feel like you're just like a free publicity for me so i appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> um so, yeah. So, you know, uh, in my residency, actually, I work with Dr. Daniel Peterson, who's actually part of a group now. He's a neurosurgeon. And, um, you know, I would do cases with him during the day. And then after that, he would run his company called LFR Biosciences. And he would do animal trials, build his team, you know, and talk about funding, kind of the whole nine yards of being uh, a founder. And it really gave me an insight of what a clinician founder looks like. And it gave me a, a real interest um, in the space. I mean, I already wanted to involved. I did biomedical engineering as an undergraduate. I did the device design track at AM. and um, And so that kind of further sparked my interest. And then from there, I began working with companies, you know, initially for free, doing senior design project work engagement stuff with them, um, and then just helping out where I could. And then kind of a long, slow rise, I feel like, into, you know, structuring uh, my engagements. Uh, how do you go from you know, not charging to charging. How do you go from charging hourly to retainer? How do you then go from retainer to deliver? How do you expand your offerings? What's the right way to market and grow that? Um, And we're actually coming out with a course, how to get into med tech consulting for clinicians. And so I'm very excited about that, you know, because a lot of people ask me and I feel like it took me a long time to learn lessons that, you know, I wish someone would have told me like five years ago, (laughs) you know, and so I'm trying to distill that down. So um, hopefully, Uh, Other people who are looking to do this kind of thing um, can have an easier path and, uh, you know, faster traction.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. No, I, when I got into consulting, I was like, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know, you know, if I should do hourly, should I do per project, should I do this? How to even, the one thing I struggled with, and I'm sure, I don't know if you struggle with the same thing, is a asking for money because I'm really bad at it. <laughs> Still to this day, I'm really really bad at uh, charging people. But um, but you know like hourly versus project based or monthly rate, right? Um, and it took me a while to kind of understand that I need to value my skills. You know, I spent a lot of money on my degree. I spent almost ten. You know, I was in the field for like eight years at the time when I started. And if I didn't value myself, they won't. No no one else will value me either. And you know. And then did you ever? How want to say this. Did you ever get any pushback? So for example, right. If you, if you get asked a question, right. And we can do it way quicker, right. We can do something in one hour that would take somebody like a week, two weeks. Right. Because we have the baseline knowledge. We know exactly where to look. Uh, sometimes, you know, they'd be like, well, you know, why are we paying you for this? Like, we, you know, we're paying you a lot of money and you give, you came back in an hour. Have you ever had anything like that? How do you, how do you deal with something like that if you do? That's a
1: good, That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, it's, sides of the coin i think one is obviously we have a lot of experience expertise knowledge and the other one is that you know we have to be able to um express that into like what exactly are you bringing to the table because you know sure i'm a physician you know this you're a pharmacist like doesn't necessarily translate into like what specifically are you going to add to my you know company and i think we have to be familiar with like what that is you know breaking that down expressing it clearly um, and then I think from there, you can make a clear value proposition into you know, um, you're gonna pay me x amount of dollars and you're gonna see y amount of results from that, you know. Um, and so that's one thing that i've I've learned to do over time. Um, I mean, in the beginning, you know, yeah, I, I think people like I mean, a founder, you know, they don't necessarily want to devalue the clinician, but they want to get things done as cheaply as possible, right? because because you know they want to lower their burn rate. Like they only have a certain amount of dollars, like the least, the less they can spend, the better it is. And so, you know, it's one of those things where like, don't hit the player at the game. Like it's not, it's not personal, you know, usually it's not, not personal. Um, but if you make it clear that like, I'm bringing you so much value, then they're going to be happy to pay you, you know, uh, a, a good amount. Um, and so I guess that's the first thing. Um, and then as far as pushback on why am I paying you this for that? Um, you know, I haven't, and and maybe it's because I'm undercharging. <laughs> you know, maybe that's a sign that uh, I should be charging more and having some amount of people pushing back on it. So, so, so yeah, no, that that's a good question. Um,
0: yeah, no, uh, I completely agree with you. I I have this, uh, I say this thing, I, I kind of like tongue in cheek, you know. Uh, time equals money. Clinicians save you time. so Clinicians save you money. So you. You need to hire one of us, right? Because that's really the end of it, right? We can we can fast track the process. And any time that I ever ran into that issue, I would kind of tell them like, "Hey, what's more important to you—the amount of money you're saving, the amount of time I'm saving you, or the amount of money you're paying me?" Right? Yeah. And usually, you know, when you can not like, obvious I'm not saying that. I mean, I say it much more eloquently than that. But you know, when you bring that up, kind of bringing up, you know, why you're so valuable, a lot of times they'll be like, "Yeah, this makes sense," right? You know. Like your team could have been working on this for months. Yeah, it only took me a a, a week or two, but that's because I knew exactly where to go, what to do, right. and I was able to troubleshoot everything really quickly, right? Um, even in my new team right now, you know, I was able I was able they I came in and they had a problem they were working on for a couple of weeks, and I just looked at it and I was like, No, this is the way it should be. And then they're like, Oh, we had never thought about that. Like, that's the kind of perspectives that we can that's bring awesome. into different teams, right? And that's why you need to pay us. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, congratulations on your uh, success in your new role, by the way. I was oh, thanks, super man. excited to see that. Yeah, I mean, well-deserved for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, and the other thing I'll say is, like, you know, you've obviously done a good job of, like, being present and putting out good content, and so people kind of are – I think it's two things, you know, that they're aware of you. That's the first step. Like, even you could be the best person in the world if no one knows you. Like, they're not going to know it even – you and then like you have you know some credibility like you're putting out stuff like hey this guy knows what he's talking about you know and so I think same thing with like tech marketing you know when, when the tech rep is putting out content that is immediately establishing them as um you know credible and, and and present then when they first approach you it's not a cold call or it's not a cold email anymore right um you have this established um awareness in in the recipient's mind so I think I think more clinician need to do that is kind of have have a brand have a presence you know and and more and more people are which is cool to see
0: yeah i know it's amazing to see people like yourself Rashad, um, all these guys you <laughs> no thanks man I appreciate it you're like my hype man right now um, yeah yeah back at you <laughs> back at you yeah we're just like spinning <laughs> no but i know it's it's awesome like you know one of the reasons why I, I mean one of the reasons why i started posting was because i was looking for a job it was really hard for me to break into the the technology world Uh, People only label, you know, I think that's one thing. It's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Uh, We want to be known as a clinician. We need, because we need, we want to, people to not respect. I don't think is a good word. We want people to understand our authority. We, you know, like we are, we, we've been, we studied a long time. We paid a lot of money to get to this point, but on the flip side, we're also only looked at that, right? We're only looked at as a clinician, a pharmacist, a doctor, a surgeon, whatever. And it was really hard for me to kind of break that. Like I am more than that. But it was so that's one of the reasons why I started posting. And then uh, from there, I mean, it's been amazing for anyone that's ever thought about it or in that zone, uh, like, you know, see what Javad is doing uh, and all these other guys and building your brand is not it doesn't have to be sleazy, cheesy or whatever. It's just building a brand is just establishing your authority, whatever you like. It could be anything. You, could, you love Legos. Talk about Legos. Like whatever it happens to be. Yeah. You know, talk about that yeah. and talk about it openly. And you will find a community that believes in what you believe in or say what you, you know, and you will I wish I had that when I was starting my startup. I didn't I didn't have that kind of community. I was just kind of on my own with my co-founder, like just grasping yeah. at straws. But um, you know, everything happens to reason, but it's it's amazing what's happening right now. And I and I love seeing uh clinicians that are creating because there's so much talent in the clinician world that definitely it's it's great to see it being like unleashed finally
1: no for sure yeah and it's also super um beneficial like you said to have a community for us like even uh clinicians to engage and support each other you know because like it's one of those things where like the rising tide lifts all boats where like we're helping each other kind of get better and you know, kind of fine tune our approaches and getting feedback and even just like supporting each other, you know, even if it's like with comments and stuff like that. I mean, I think, you know, it definitely goes a long way and just like creating this like groundswell of support for each other, you know, and that's cool to see. And it's also cool to see that it's kind of across disciplines, right? It's not just like MDs are one group, PharmDs are one group, RNs are one group, PAs, and you know, it's like, it's kind of great to see clinicians kind of uniting uh, with each other because there's not this like us versus them, between clinical specialties, I feel like, at least on LinkedIn, you know, everyone is kind of uh, happy to see frontline clinicians be successful.
0: Yeah, 100%. That's one of the things I'm I love seeing, uh, especially on a platform like LinkedIn, um, is just that, just that support for each other, that I think that I think sometimes, like you said, we sometimes get so siloed, and we are, we never really talk to each other. I was just having conversations with somebody else is like, We get so siloed and there's so much duplication, duplication of work because we don't really understand what the other is doing. And that's another reason why like building, you know, putting yourself out there, building a brand, whatever is so important because even if you're not trying to transition your career or anything like that, you get, people will understand what you and your colleagues are doing and they'll be like, oh wow, that's amazing. We didn't know that. And I've had so many people reach out to me like, you know, I didn't know pharmacists did that. I had a, you Mm -hmm. know, I, I hematologist who worked who rounds with a pharmacist every day and tell me you know I didn't know what you guys did after you guys left rounds all I heard was a call saying I messed up a drug order or something right and she right. and I told her like all this stuff we did and she's like wow I didn't really understand that and that's somebody who is a advocate for our profession right and she didn't know so it's really important to break down these silos break down these walls and I that's like you said I love what's happening and it's so amazing to see
1: yeah, for sure. I mean, I've interacted with Jamie Wolke and we had a call a few months ago and um, her success has been awesome. And I talked to her community and it was cool to see all the things that pharmacists were doing and building. And I think conversely, they were interested in just talking to a physician and kind of, you know, I think there was this like hesitance to like reach out to physicians in their community. And we found, you know, there's an opportunity maybe for uh, pharmacists looking to build a pharmacogenomics practice to engage with uh primary care physicians building a concierge medicine practice, maybe there's some synergy there. So it's always cool to see what kind of practical um, things come out of these conversations, you know, just because not many people have had those in the past. So there could be hidden opportunities, if you will.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And then also it, it allows us to work together. In the end, it's, in the end, it's only going to help the patient, right? The more we know about each other, the more we work together, it, our end goal with medicine was to help others. And it's, it's only going to be good for the patient in the long run. And that's what, that's what kind of makes me excited as well. But uh, you were talking about your course. Um, is there any, any, any date is going to drop or, do, or are you guys still working on it? Like, is there like,
1: yeah, still working on it. Um, you know, I am like, can be OCD and trying to be perfectionist sometimes. And I'm, you know, I want to get it out there. Uh, I'm going to be a beta version. Um, if you want, I can give you, you and your subscribers a link to the beta version. And they can, you know, have a, a discount uh, on it and give me feedback because I would love feedback on like, you know, this really helped. Here's more of what I'm looking for. Um, and so I'm shooting for um, beginning of March okay. for, for the beta to come out.
0: Nice. Yeah, no, I would, I would, I'll, you know, yeah, whenever it's out, I would love to um, disseminate that uh, across my subscribers. That would be, that'd be awesome. Yeah, no. And I think that, you know, for somebody that's actually doing it, you know, you're not, you're not just making this up based on some books you've read. You've actually physically been doing all this stuff. So I think that'd be extremely valuable. And you've been very successful. It's not like you're just doing it. You're, you've also been well, successful. Well, it's
1: so practical. It's literally like the things I wish someone had told me five years ago. You know? Like, if someone had told me these things five years ago, I would it would take, like, years off of my trajectory, you know? Um, and so that was that was my whole point
0: yeah, in no. building it. Yeah, no, that's amazing, man. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so how... So we... So we kind of talked about how like people would reach out, like how uh, health tech companies should reach out to clinicians. Let's like flip it on the other end. Like how, what would you recommend to clinicians if they wanted to go into med tech or health tech or whatever, digital, whatever tech companies out there, how would you say that they approach that?
1: For sure. Yeah. And I also have a segment of this in, in the course too, because I think <laughs> that's part of it, right? Is like, um, how do you slowly kind of, you know, um, engage the industry and get traction with, with your business and this is actually from the mindset of uh, a practicing clinician, right? This is someone who's kind of doing this um, on the side, if you will. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of slow and steady steps. And I start with, you know, just reaching out to the people who are in your environment, who are with industry, even like, you know, I feel like we often dismiss the reps who are around us. Like I used to always engage with the reps and, and I actually had like my first few clients were because the rep put me in the direction of somebody recommended me. And then, you know, you talk to the other person and then, you know, at least to at least to something, you know. And so I think that's in very low-hanging fruit in terms of engagement with industry is just the reps that are coming to the office or in the hospital. If you're in the OR, obviously there's reps in the OR. If you had a conference, right, there's always reps there representing their companies. That's a very easy place to engage, like low risk. You know, like you're not going to mess anything up by having a conversation with uh, an industry representative. Um, so that's one way. Another way is um, in the, through the academic track. Um, I several times I did. These combined projects with senior design groups, either biomedical engineering or mechanical engineering. As far as for me, I mean, with other professions, it could be maybe even with chemical engineering or even chemistry or something like that. Um, but I combine, I aligned with a startup company, and we co-sponsored a senior design team, and that did a couple of things. I mean, for the clinician, it gave them industry experience. For the company, it gave them a really cheap source of, you know. Um, labor for the project they were doing. And for the students, it gave them a very practical, real-world project to work on, you know? Um, Actually, we wrote it up. uh, We called it the MedTech Innovation Course. We wrote a a few papers on it, um, presented them at uh, Biomedical Engineering Society. And so it was a cool project. That's another thing that clinicians can do. Um, And then from there, it's just, you know, having some kind of formal structure. You don't have to form an LLC, but you should have some kind of, you know, structure that you consult through. I think if you just show up like, "Hey, I'm Jawad. I want to work with you." Like, that's not the best way to engage. I think if you have, um, like, "I'm Doctor, you know X," and I, you know, here's what I provide. Um, here's the structure my services take. Then it's going to be much more likely for you to have a successful conversation when you are talking about having a business arrangement with a company. Um, and then, you know, after that, it's just growing the um, the business kind of growing, the fees that you charge, adding partners to it, um, and and things like that. I mean, and another piece of advice I'll say, which took me longer to learn that than the cure to admit is, it's always more effective to be narrow. Like the if you're a hyper focused, it's going to be so much easier to get clients because they're like you're exactly the person I'm looking for. Versus if you're very broad, unless you're like you know the world's expert in some disease, like. The company doesn't really have a great reason to come to you.
0: Yeah, no. Um, niche Finding your niche is extremely important. It's still something I struggle with, to be completely honest. But uh, yeah, once you kind of niche down into something, you are going to move much faster, much quicker. Yep. And you'll yep. make more money that way too because yep. you That's are right. the authority in that specific niche. There's no That's one right. else that can... So when you when you're charging people money... They're like, okay, this makes sense. This guy is. This right. is literally what this guy, this person does, right? Exactly. So exactly,
1: and 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 you think like, oh, the, like first our thing was you know early stage like life science startups. It's so broad, you know, but then now I focus on basically surgical technology and digital, um, surgery startups. You know, early stage, and so um, yeah. I mean, that's got to be much more traction.
0: Yeah, no, that's amazing. I think I think that's amazing advice. Uh, one that. I'm still trying to implement myself, um,
1: and I still am too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, I think it's. I mean, I think just by. I think when you go into medicine, we are curious by nature, and we most people most people that are in the in the clinician world or medicine in general, we we like to do different things. We like to learn. We've literally been learning our whole life. Right. It's it's hard to stop that, uh, and I think that's something that with me personally, it stopped. It it's hard for me to kind of niche down, but. You are absolutely right. You need to niche down. Whoever, don't do what we did initially. Just niche down, find your niche, find something you really, really enjoy. Yep. You can do the other stuff on your spare time, but if you want to make money, make money yep. with a niche for sure. Um, what was I going to say? Um, oh, yeah. So you, you're you obviously, so you consult with, you know, you're a surgeon, you love med tech, that, that's kind of the world you live in. What kind of, what's, is there anything that's coming out that you're really excited about?
1: Yeah, there's a lot coming out. I mean, I think one huge category which is needed is um, change in the care delivery. You know, that's not my area that I consult in, but I think that's the most exciting area um, beyond a specific tool or software. I think, you know, the delivery models, I think, have the most opportunity for impact. You know, Um, and so that's, I think, that I'm excited to see because obviously everyone knows what's happening right now is not working. And it'd be really interesting to see over the next 10 years like how we change that, you know, how we provide better care at lower cost for more people. Um, and so it's, it's an open question right now. And I'm interested in seeing kind of, you know, how um like future endeavors impact that. I mean, there's some interesting things happening with um, you know, these uh pair provider combination companies that you know really track their metrics and sell themselves to large businesses, for example, you know. Um, as a, a better uh, turn on their uh, healthcare investment dollars. Um, you know, people are talking about um, integrating the outcomes of clinicians with payers to have, um, you know, directing patients towards certain uh, clinicians, um, you know, and so that's not my specialty in terms of my work, but I feel like that is an area that has the most uh, room for impact. Um, as far as in the digital surgery space, you know, I talk to everybody who cares to listen about artificial intelligence. I mean, I think everyone says AI, ML, and it gets super old to hear everyone say that all the time. But uh, I think, you know, amidst amidst all the hype, there is um, a, a real uh, game changing technology. You know, so I heard a podcast recently, and, you know, they used to say that, you know, software is going to eat the world. Um, and now they say that AI is going to eat the world. Um, and I think um, for clinicians, it's it's really, really important for us to not be caught flat-footed on this one and to engage with this technology because it's gonna change healthcare one way or the other. And if we're not engaged, then it's gonna change it in ways that doesn't have our best interest uh, in mind. You know, So like if we can improve our efficiency, we can use that to get more time for us to engage with the patient or it can be used for us to um, add more patients to our census, right? And so that's just a very straightforward example of how the same technology, can um, improve a clinician's environment or it can uh, at best you know not make it better Um, and so i i think i think that's one area where everyone should learn about it i recommend the book deep medicine by eric topol i think required reading for every clinician um just to get a good start on like what 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 it is what what's been done with it and what the future holds and actually uh (laughs) we're working on another course called an ai primer for clinicians and so um, that one's probably going to, that one's a little bit longer, so maybe like March, April for that one. But um, I, I'm really passionate about this. And I think, you know, just an easy to digest way um, with video and slides for clinicians to, like, get an idea of, like, what's going on in the world of AI and healthcare.
0: Hey, man, you can talk about AI, ML, all you want on this podcast. Yeah, uh, I know. that, that I love I love that stuff, man. Uh, and I completely agree with you. Uh, We don't want AI and ML to turn like what EHRs became, right? We were not really involved with that. And then it became literally our whole environment. I mean, everything we do is in the EHR. And then now we're complaining about it. So that's right. AI is coming. ML is coming. It's all coming. You know, when it's coming, we can debate on that. But we need to be involved right now. So we are ready. We can guide it. Like I tell people, hey, isn't it better to just guide it? to what we needed to do, right? Rather than other people telling us how we need to practice. So like EHR exactly. told us how to practice, or are, sh- are guiding us how to practice. Exactly. And we don't want the same thing to happen with AI and ML.
1: No, for sure. I totally agree. And this this is our opportunity before it becomes mainstream, you know? Like with EHR, it's very hard to kind of change the way it's used because it's used mostly for like, you know, billing purposes essentially, you know. And I think with AI, it can be used along those same lines. Um, and and I think some of the, the leverage, if you will, that we have now is that there is a clinician shortage. And so if we use it to uh, make the clinician environment better, it'll help with that, you know. And, and inside of that, there's a financial incentive, right, for the health care organization, for the company, for the payer to actually use this technology to make the clinical environment better. Because then you're going to be able to um, recruit, retain, uh, and maintain that clinical workforce, you know. So it's not just totally divorced from like a financial incentive or ROI, you know?
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, there's there's just so many. I mean, we can. I mean, we can literally talk for. I could have a conversation for days, honestly, about this topic. And I've written about it quite a bit as well. Um, and there's just so many applications to it. And like you mentioned, it's let's use it to help us. You know, I think I don't know. I mean, maybe you were maybe more in the pulse of this. You know, is there like? Do you think like clinicians are scared of AI or they don't trust it or, you know, what, what is, what do you think is the biggest hurdle for clinicians and AI? I mean, it's coming, but why aren't we getting more involved with it?
1: I think as clinicians, we have such a huge foundation of knowledge in the work that we do that it's hard for us to approach a whole new subject area that we had really for most of us zero foundation in and to grasp what it is, you know, um, So I think that's part of the problem where like if it was clinically relevant or, you know, clinically adjacent, then it would be easier for us. But it seems like totally like separate from our knowledge base. And so I think it's hard for us to even, you know, think about learning about it. But in reality, like the basics, like it's not that complicated, you know. And and so um, there's papers out there. That's what our course is looking to do also is just like break it down. You don't have to be scared about it. Um, You don't have to like found an AI company, all you have to do is understand the basic premise of how it works and then advocate for the clinician in its development and implementation, right? Simple as that.
0: No, I 100% agree. I mean, if you really look into building an AI model, it's like a couple lines of code and boom, you have an AI model that'll learn and do its own thing. And also, you know, I think with AI, it's, it's very much like, you know, if, if a clinician wants to get involved in it, most of AI is all about um, patterns, right it's all about patterns and everything and that's kind of what we do deal with in medicine right and it's all about pattern recognition and all that stuff so it's very for me it's a very parallel type of thinking between medicine and ai and ml
1: yeah for sure i mean i think once a cl- clinician understand like the basics of how it works like they're going to be like oh like this makes sense you know like it's not it's not something that they're going to be uh like just dumbfounded by you know um and so yeah i mean especially people like yourselves who like or coding and working with it actively. Um, And you don't even have to be at that level, right? Um, To just give like, you know, here's how I would use it. And also like, you know, some of the dangers in AI, and there's a good book called um, Hello World, which talks about, um, you know, just basics of AI in general, even apart from medicine. Um, But like, you kind of have this black box phenomenon, you know, and unless you really know what to look for, you could be using ai tools and the results could be just wrong and you don't you don't even know and i think that's an area where clinicians can kind of be like you know i think this al- this algorithm is not providing results that make sense to me you know because a lot of times you don't even know how I came up with the results and that's one of the biggest dangers is you know perpetuating um wrong treatments perpetuating you know obviously racial bias um and things like that uh which are inevitable when you train it on a bad data-, data set right um and so I think a clinician's role is important in kind of determining, you know, how these algorithms are trained, how they're implemented, what the guide rails are, you know, when to use one, when not to use one, some of the ethical dilemmas around it. You know, there's so many opportunities to be honest.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And I think like and you hit the nail on the head, right? Like you want to make sure that the AI is trained properly. And that's one thing that I think that even I tell people is like I love AI and stuff, but we also have to be weary of what it can do. Right now, Biases are being taken by us, right? Humans, humans, we yeah. you can't, we are not multiplying it, right? But if you have an AI model that's being implemented, like, in the whole United States, and it's based on a biased model, you have literally compounded the issue, literally. Um, that's right. Uh, so... So that's another reason why we need to like we need to know what data sets are going in there, why this data set is better than this other data set that's right, and then also um it'll also train clinicians on data entry right because that's a big yeah, thing with healthcare totally. huge like thing. if we can get in and then then it'll it'll show to clinician, okay, no, I have to enter this data this way because right. for the a i model to work better because that's in the right. end it's gonna save me time and save me that's money, right. and it'll help totally. our, my patients in the long run
1: totally yeah, it's a huge issue even in the surgical video space you know, surgical video ownership, recording more videos, annotating them, um, definitely. yeah. I mean, in the beginning, and I'm not an AI expert by any means, but I was like very gung-ho about it, you know, like it's going to be doing my surgeries for me and all this stuff. And the more I learned, the more I was like, whoa, like there is a lot of need for caution in this area. You know, the tools and the technology might be there, but in healthcare in particular, uh, we have to be very careful rolling it out, um, you know, on actual patients.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And, and then the other thing that's kind of like a common theme, I kind of talk about it like kind of farcically, you know, them saying like, oh, AI is going to le- replace us, right? Right. AI sure. is very, very far away from replacing clinicians. Right. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I mean, even Sam Altman, the guy who created OpenAI, he uh, was talking about um, OpenAI as ChatGPT for the other people yep. that don't understand, uh, that are listening. But anyways, he was talking about a sentient AI, basically one that can learn on its own and, you know, basically be like a human brain. He's like, we're yeah. quite a bit away from that and it's not anytime soon. So if the guy who created the biggest phenomenon <laughs> in yeah. the last couple of months is saying that, I think that the clinical side is going to be pretty safe for a little bit, but on the same breath, it's still coming and it's going to, and I think it's going to start automating things that are like black yeah. and white issues. Right? right. Um, So it's, it's an interesting, I honestly, I love the AI ML space. I think it's really, really fascinating. And there's just so many ways it can be used um but in the same breath we have to be very careful of how we use it and when we use
1: definitely. it definitely i mean there's problems not to go on this too much but there's problems that we might not realize like you know people make the analogy of self-driving cars when you have to pay attention you know uh, uh, on the spur of the moment when something happens that the ai can't handle but obviously you're not paying attention because you haven't been paying attention for the last half an hour and then now you have to pay attention right away It can lead to problems, you know, and then down the road when new drivers are trained with, you know, these partially autonomous cars, are they going to be able to drive as well, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think same thing with future clinicians, like, you know, you have all this augmented, you know, radiology and, um, you know, pathology and, you know, how do those future specialists keep up their skills when they are required to like, you know, analyze something with AI as like, hey, I'm going to tap out here. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're up, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah, I know for sure. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be an interesting decade to like the next 10 20 years is going to be really interesting in medicine. I think it's yeah. going to be much different than than it is now. Like yeah. how we grew up with medicine is going to be completely changed. Uh, exactly. And it's exciting, scary all at the same time, but it's it's uh, like I said, I'd rather be part of creating the change than just having the change dropped on my head.
1: Exactly. You know, and I think that's a call to action for all clinicians. It's like, we have to be a part of it. I yeah. have a son and daughter over here. No, it's all, they're,
0: yeah, uh, no. they're hanging out. <laughs> no, it's all good. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is creating an in- environment of innovation. So uh, healthcare is kind of looked at as the slow-moving, the slow-moving train in the world, right? Like we are 10, 15 years behind in all technology. Um, have you, how you being like a clinician, you know, how do you think is a good way of creating a culture of innovation for the clinical world? I don't know if you can answer that question. I don't even know. I don't even have an answer for that question. Honestly, I, I'm just interested in seeing if you have an answer or it's just something that's kind of a work in progress.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I have the answer. I mean, I have some thoughts about it. I mean, I think one is just, um, creating connectivity, you know, which I think, um, is pretty common sense, like you don't have a culture if the people who you want to be as part of the culture aren't even talking to each other or have a way to reach out to each other. That's one. I mean, I think the other thing is it starts at the top. I think if the leaders of organizations really um, dedicate resources to uh, innovation, that sends a strong message that, you know, um, this whole organization is dedicated to innovation. I think that's how organizations really survive in the long term is by being open to change. Um, heard a podcast by the founder of uh, a travel and expense site called Navon talking about how, you know, Salesforce uh, was so huge, but they've stopped innovating. And so, you know, they're going to be extinct in, you know, the future. And uh, some of these things where it was interesting to hear, because, you know, I never thought about it like that, you know, these, these big organizations, unless they innovate, they're really going to be, um, you know, open to to failure in the long run, you know? And so I think, I think it is imperative for these large Um, healthcare and payer organizations to to be um, supportive of innovation. A lot of them are doing that. Um, So that's the other thing. And then outside of that, I think as far as individual clinicians, I think it's just, you know, taking the time to um, dedicate to it, I would say, because the return isn't immediate, you know, like you're not going to do stuff with innovation and then have some monetary return like that week or that month, even that year or even ever. You know, but I think we have to see the values of society. And I think the more that organizations can promote that and support it and incentivize it, the more it's going to benefit ourselves. Um And I think we're seeing it a little bit with this, like, you know, creator environment and, you know, everybody is realizing that they have to kind of like, like as more and more things get um, automated, the more our creativity is valued. Right. I mean, at some point that's the spectrum, right? Like you're from like the factory worker to complete, just, you know, imagining things, you know? And so I think we're going along that trajectory. And so, you know, the more we can empower ourselves to be creative, I think the more success we'll have in the long term. And that goes all the way down to like how we educate and train our kids.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I think it's, like I said, it's going to be interesting. And yeah, I agree with you. I think that it starts from the top, a culture of innovation starts from the top and you need, you need leadership to be behind it as well. Um, the uh, One of the other things, one of the last last topics I want to kind of cover with you, you are kind of diving into kind of talking about um, venture capital. You're reading a lot of books on it. You share weekly thoughts about what you learn in VC. Kind of just want to get your thoughts on it, you know, coming from not a VC world. Like what, have, what has it been like, the things that you're learning about the VC world and also... Do you think that the VC world and healthcare are a good mix? Because there's arguments on both sides, right? The, you know, VCs are not good for healthcare or no VCs are great for healthcare. Like where, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I do my, um, my basic venture capital inside of the week and it's basically kind of like learn along with me. Right. Basically. Um, and so I, you know, like a lot of us, I used to like glamorize VC and not really understand what it was. Um, it just seemed like, you know, just millions of dollars and writing checks and, you know, like it was like awesome. And, you know, everybody has awesome like returns and, you know, like it's perfect. Um, but the more you learn, the more you realize, like, you know, it's an industry, it, it's, it's, it's um, an art form. There is a lot of knowledge that goes into a lot of work that goes into it. You know, there's no guarantee of success. Um, and so that kind of, you know, made me more informed to how this world works. Because Obviously, when you work with startups, a large part of it is fun- funding. And fundraising. Um, And so that's one big reason I I wanted to be more educated is because these are the companies that I work with are dealing with that. And so, you know, the advice that I give them has to have that kind of um, relevance. Um, Obviously it's, you know, there are a lot of problems with private equity in healthcare, you know? I think when the healthcare organization is uh, answering to investors for a return and that's their main goal, it's a problem. You know, no one's no one's going to argue like it's no one's going to say that's the best thing for the patient or the clinician is when the ultimate priority is the return on investment. And when you're venture backed, like that is your ultimate priority in some ways. Right. That's the that's like legally the job of the board is to ensure returns for the shareholders. You know what I mean? And so um, sometimes that's a good thing because it creates. You know, um, good technologies or great organizations and a lot of times it's a bad thing. Because it takes away the mission of delivering excellent care, and you it it gets superseded by the mission of delivering profits, you know. And so that's that's the problem in a nutshell, you know. And I think we have to be cautious of that. And I think you know a lot of venture investors themselves will admit that to you, where you know they're they're not going to um, invest in certain areas because it's it's not for the best for for society, right? And they're all going to invest in other areas because they can have impact and move the needle forward in making it better. Um, and so you kind of have to balance those two things. And I think you know the clinician involvement can help with that because when the, cl- the clinician is involved, then they can kind of balance those two things. Like how do we improve patient care and the clinical work environment while creating value um, for the ecosystem, right? And so you kind of have um, a win all across where patients are treated better, the clinician environment is better, and you know, you're making some kind of return. Um, but it's definitely complicated. I mean, I think healthcare investing is very complicated, you know? Um, So that's another role. It's like advising investors. That's something that we're starting to do is kind of, you know, giving feedback to investors when they do the diligence on these companies on what's a good investment and what's not, especially from the clinical perspective.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's, I mean, the more I learn about the VC world, um, I'm not diving as deep into as you are, but like the little that I do know, it is, yeah, like you said, it's not as glamorous as, We, I once thought it was, um, you know, you learn that majority of their investments do fail, but like the ones that hit, they hit big and that's their goal, right? Um, So, you know, it's, that's, I mean, it's just an interesting conversation. It's one that's going to be, I think, uh, argued about back and forth from both sides for quite a long time. Um, But yeah, no, man. Um, So just wanted to end this podcast off with, you know, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but you know, knowing what you know now, what kind of advice would you have given yourself you know, coming out of med school or, you know, while you were looking for a career?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I gave a talk to this group called the MedTech Foundation. Uh, this is a UK based group about trainees that are interested in med tech. And like, there was nothing like that when I was a medical student. Now There wasn't like a med tech, like interest group, right? It was all based on clinical specialties. Um, and so I think a lot of uh, that the trainees already know is like, you have to be an independent thinker more than ever. You have to establish your own brand more than ever. You have to prioritize your own autonomy more than ever. You have to advocate for yourself more than ever. So that's the advice that, you know, I would give trainees now. And, um, you know, I, even though, like, I'm not that old, if I'm, like, gracious to myself, um, it's still a different environment than even when I came through residency or med school, you know. Um, it's a different culture. The practice environment is different. Um, and so it's interesting time. You have to kind of go into it with eyes wide open, um, you know, and you have to kind of, like, be a part of making it better you know Uh, whereas when I was a medical student like that wasn't as big of a focus is you know how are clinicians advocating for making the healthcare delivery system better but I think now I think the onus is on every clinician to kind of be a part of that because it's such a critical time
0: yeah no I think that's great advice but um, yeah I don't really have much to add to that Uh, so if uh, anyone wants to get a hold of you what's the best way of getting a hold of you
1: LinkedIn is the best way. It's uh, Jawad L A M D. Hit me up there. I'm very open to you know messages, uh, connections. If you want to check out Validity Partners, it's ValidityPartners.com, and then uh, Austin MedTech Connect is at AustinMedTech.org.
0: Awesome, and I'll have all those linked below. But oh, Jawad, thank you so much. The, this was an awesome conversation. Hopefully, we'll have to we'll get to do it again sometime. But yeah, no, thanks a lot, man.
1: For sure. No, thanks for having me on, and. Uh, all the best to you, and look forward to kind of continue to watch your rise to greatness, Zane. <laughs> um,
0: I really appreciate that a lot, same. Likewise, I, I mean, you're you're doing amazing things, and it's great to see uh, good people succeed. You know, it's and it's awesome. I mean, and to anyone who doesn't know him, uh, Jawad's an awesome guy. He does a lot of good work. We didn't even talk about you know some of the volunteer work that you do for refugee funds and stuff like that. But uh, you do a yeah, lot well,
1: of you know don't uh, yeah. I feel like that's that's an area that uh, probably you know. Um, I don't deserve as much credit, but yeah, thank you for saying that.
0: No, I mean, but I mean, the thing is, you know, it's like I said, it's good to see good people succeed. And, um, in a world where we're all very jaded, um, it's nice to have people like you, um, kind of taking the torch and leading us.
1: I appreciate that so much, man. Thanks so much, Zane. Yeah, no, happy to be on here and yeah, whenever you want to do it again, just let me know.